When upon the hill of heaven and earth on spawned the Anuna gods, since he neither spawned nor created grain with them, and since in the land he neither fashioned the yarn of Utu, the goddess of weaving, nor pegged out the loom for Utu, with no sheep appearing, there was no numerous lambs, and with no goats, there were no numerous kids. The sheep did not give birth to her twin lambs, and the goat did not give birth to her triplet kids. The Anuna, the great gods, do not even know the names of Izinakusu, grain, or sheep. Debate between sheep and grain. Welcome to Warfare Advancement Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, and I hope you enjoy this week's. Uh, I've been very pleased with the last couple of weeks. Uh, seems like... Uh, Growth from December, um, while not 100% carried over, uh, is still trending pretty well upward over the course of the podcast of the year. So again, I'd like to thank everyone who has been continuing listening, turning in, telling friends, sharing, all that kind of good stuff. I hope you'll continue to do all of that. Now this week we're going to be continuing to study Gobekli Tepe, and we'll expand on how and what we learned from the site uh, and how that evolved after the initial discovery and excavation, as well as talk about how some of this has been changed or reinterpreted or challenged as excavation and study of the site has continued over time. First though, we're going to break down the site following the way the excavation team has. The oldest evidence of occupation dates to around 9500 BCE, and the level of habitation and use of the site from those earliest dates didn't turn up much of anything, aside from being a place where tools were made. Um, no hearth fires, buildings, things like that. As time went on, though, more distinct and more unique features were either developed or imported by the groups that used the site. Uh, now, layer one of the site is the uppermost layer closest to the topsoil. Uh, this was the longest, um, I guess, used and shows nothing but loose soil and dirt associated with what you would imagine with agriculture and animal herding. And the, stead- you know, the standard steady passion of time that you would see on a, on a place or a landscape exposed to the elements. Um, now, when we discuss what has been uncovered at the site um, after that, we have two primary layers that have currently been excavated, or mostly excavated, and are being studied. The oldest layer is layer 3, and it has been dated to between 8,300 to about 7,500 BC, BCE. And layer 2 has been dated to around 7,500 to about 6,000 BCE. Now, layer 3 is where you find most of the T-shaped pillars. The pillars of layer 3 are made of um, limestone. As far as I can tell, they're all made of limestone. Uh, And they're housed in four circular buildings. Uh, Now, circular buildings seem to be kind of the universal shape of all homes or tents made of stone, mud brick, wood, pelts, or whatever else um, people have been using 
up to and during this PPNA period. Um, these buildings, though, are stone, and uh, they have been labeled as A, B, C, and D. Uh, now, there has also been evidence that these buildings and some of the teeth-shaped pillars themselves had possibly been uh, buried and then dug back up. Um, maybe every few decades or so, um, kind of a on a decade-by-decade decade basis during the time frame that this site was in use. And there's no way to tell if they were all buried at once, if they were all kind of buried at different points, or maybe one was buried and three others were undone, or two and two, however you want to break it up. Um, and this is, um, there's evidence of this practice at the neighboring Stone Hills site, which I believe I mentioned last week, uh, in addition to Gobekli Tepe. There are a number of similar sites with T-shaped pillars in and around this region. And I'll go more into these sites later um, when we kind of um, discuss this um, in the next episode or so. Um, now this led to a question of whether or not these were all built during the same general period of time by the same people, or if they were built one after another by separate groups. Um, Klaus, Klaus Schmidt, the gentleman who led the first in-depth archaeological dig on the region and there at the site, initially believed that this was a kind of a mountaintop retreat for various groups of hunter-gatherers to congregate seasonally and share, you know, commun communally cooked meals, uh, probably in the uh, same time frame or in sync with the seasons that there was a mass migration of red deer through the area using this um, place as kind of a camp initially in those early phases to kind of set up to hunt the deer that were moving through the region but then later it came to kind of a, a melting pot or a, an area for different groups possibly all related possibly partially related partially not even related at all uh, depending on you know the time frame it, all of these are possible we have no evidence one way or the other to this you know to conclusively say one way or the other, but this might have been a place for uh, to come together to prepare a meal, settle disputes, make agreements, trades, arrange marriages, or even practice you know shared religious cult uh, customs. Uh, Schmidt studied all of the figures on the T-shaped pillars and noticed that none of the animals are in the process of being hunted or attacked, and uh, there are no deers. On any of the pillars um, at least in the ones in these main chamber as far as I know they're merely looking on and might kind of be facing or said to be facing you know this is kind of relief work so it's not 100% clear but they may have been staring kind of into the center of these buildings that these pillars are kind of circled around so this led Schmidt to theorize that these people were more interested in animistic or shamanistic practices, focusing on the spirits of humans and dead ancestors and animals, 
rather than fully articulated and anthropomorphized uh, deities. Uh, he felt that the animals were guarding over the spirits of the dead. Uh, and he, you know, there are a lot of fierce animals in this. Um, boars, foxes, um, ducks, uh, scorpions. Things that um, you might think twice about attacking, though. Um, things like vultures. Uh, though there are some animals that you might not consider too fierce. Things like ducks. Perhaps um, someone, I, I read one theory that said perhaps these were different groups, that these animals were meant to represent different uh, family groups uh, that may come and kind of commune together. Um, possibly that might be why some pillars were buried. Some of these groups disappeared. They were no longer at the site or, you know, they would come back later for different periods of time. So their pillars were unearthed and returned. Um, these are all very interesting theories. I think they're, they're pretty, pretty good. But uh, Schmidt felt um, that the animals were guarding over the spirits of the dead, and he predicted that human remains had been deposited behind niches or alcoves that were covered up or even guarded by the pillars. Now, eventually, fragments of human skulls were found in 2017, but this was uh, three years after Schmidt had passed, so um, whether or not this changed heavily how he interpreted or would have interpreted this unfortunately we do not know for sure uh, this uh, could of course being in the PPNA period uh, at least for most of the, the earliest part um, they could have been burying ancestors remains similar to how they were doing at houses at other sites uh, if this was you know sometime later and this has been associated with the site. This may have even been one of the starting locations for those uh, skull cults or potential skull cults where an individual's head was covered by plaster or whatever and, you know, decorated to appear as the individual may have appeared in life. Uh, as far as I know, they haven't got, been able to get DNA from any of these sources so far. Uh, but it is something that is still being, of course, studied and excavated. Uh, pardon for that rough cut there. There was an alarm. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so there's been no DNA evidence discovered. Um, but it's something I'm sure they'll continue to look for. Uh, so that was kind of Schmidt's idea when he based on what they found. So this led a number, or this led to a number of large questions um, and just some stunning, you know, just some stunning revelations if, if all this was true. Um, first of all, this site was constructed solely by hunter-gatherers um, who had not done any type of uh, monolithic carving, you know, these large stone things, at least at this level. Uh, this is something well beyond um, what had been attempted before, at least as far as, you know, we have a record of. Um, at least, you know, by by hunter-gatherers. Um, there are, of course, things that have 
probably precursed this in other places, things like um, the standing of stones together to create dolmens, uh, things like that. Uh, there have been uh, carved wood sources that are older than this, um, and they can be quite large. I think there have been some found in Siberia, um, though some of these stone pillars are massive. These are, these are very large, much larger than your average human, um, though there are some that are considerably smaller and some on the size of humans. Um, so this is something that is kind of a jump forward from what you would expect a hunter-gatherer would be able to do. And especially something that's only done seasonally, this is something that would take time and resources. And as we discussed last week, there is no readily available source of water, at least apparently. And there is no evidence for any kind of domestic sources of crops or animals. This is all something that's been done by people who conceivably were tracking and following uh, the seasonal migrations of deer, mostly. So these people creating this site seems, well, it quite frankly, it breaks an understanding or a long-held understanding of human history, which this type of thing was only done by sedentary societies that had, you know, been in place for a while, and that uh, they were supported in these kind of extra, extra curricular, I guess is the best word, um, but by a non-mobile food source. So these are, these heavy artistic and ceremonial outpourings are typically only done by people who have a reasonably steady and secure source of food. So this being done by a group of hunter-gatherers is extremely surprising, and it was a shock to the archaeological community at large, and this has of course led to the site becoming famous, um, and this is the interpretation that has kind of permeated most of you know the conversation about this site it has also led to a numerous um shall we say um fringe archaeologists and historians and others that have kind of run with this idea that this site was you know possibly a kind of uh dispersal place for a number of, um, shall we say, uh, extraterrestrial or supernatural or preternatural humans, uh, more advanced, perhaps disseminating technology to uh, the hunter-gatherers that were coming into the area. Um, the quote I used at the start of this episode is from the beginning of the debate between sheep and grain, which is part of um, the Sumerian creation story or one of the Sumerian creation stories where it talks about how um, the gods come down from their mountain home to give humans uh, these new creations they've made, uh, sheep and uh, grain. Um, and to be fair, this isn't a this isn't kind of a link that has just been made by the French. There are some historians, and I think Klaus Schmidt even did it to an extent where um, these people may have been at the forefront of developing um, 
or adapting these uh, new versions or these new sources of food and uh, animals uh, and they may have kind of dispersed it down when they left Gobekli Tepe and kind of served as the origin point in the far myth excuse me sorry someone's revving their engine just right at the stoplight out there so that this may have been um that this may have been the the very ancient myths at the starting point of some of these myths that you know of course over time have been built up and that these wise people eventually became uh these ancient uh you know primordial deities that you know led to humanity living as they did um and i think there there might be a little bit of truth to that um now obviously you know this is the you know this uh this source is written down i believe i want to say that this version of the myth uh is from around i think the third millennium bc uh which would be uh, i believe it would be ten thousand years give or take from this time frame i think i'm screwing up the timeline there um but it, it, it's it's quite a way it's quite a while um uh hold on let me double check my math on that so we'll just say we'll be generous and say that maybe the site is underdated let's say it's 9000 bc uh this would probably be around the okay 9000 bc would be 11,000 years ago and then this was written down Probably, yeah, around 5,000 years, four or 5,000 years after the fact, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Um, I'd have to, again, I need to double check that uh, that date. But basically, there's a long time. And without a written language, you know, stories are easily able to be embellished if you don't hold them in place to an extent or, you know, keep contextualizing them in the bounds of the realistic they're more likely to become more fantastical to make them more interesting and to kind of help them stick in one's memory i think that's a common part of storytelling so you know it's not hard to see that you know maybe these people living up in the mountains did develop some technologies and then when the climate changed or what have you caused these people to kind of you know have to abandon this site uh, at least more frequently um maybe they passed on their information and their knowledge to their neighbors that they these places they were moving back into maybe that drove more people in maybe this kind of became a place where the secrets of um animal husbandry and uh, uh agriculture were dispersed to other groups and then this journey kind of became the kind of focal point for a lot of myths. Uh, it's possible. Um, and there are parts of it I think could be true very easily. Um, now, whether or not these people that had built this place used psychic powers and, you know, imparted these visions with some type of, you know, uh, you know, 
visions or, you know, forced uh, mass hallucinations, things like that. Um, obviously, that is closer to the realm of science fiction, and they're rather than fact. And then, of course, there's no evidence to actually disprove or prove this conveniently enough for some people who might peddle this type of thing. And this is much the same case for the people who say it was aliens. You know, you just have to kind of uh, take some of these theories at uh, face value, and then there are some that obviously can never be proven or disproven, but who, you know, that do make a very good story, if nothing else. Um, now, of course, I told you all that to kind of tell you that a lot of what was thought about Gobekli Tepe uh, is no longer 100% uh, accurate. Um, I mentioned before that there was very little evidence of domesticated animals and foods and grains, uh, and that was true for layer uh, three, this early layer that we're discussing. However, um, more advanced uh, archaeological techniques, um, something called wet sieving has been important, has turned up some early or semi, uh, early sources of domesticated or semi-domesticated grains. Um, there's still not much in the way of animal bones, but there is more and more evidence that these people were not just simple hunter-gatherers, that they probably were on the cutting edge of adopting agriculture and um, uh, animal husbandry or animal handling. Uh, so that is something that has really come about recently, within the last, I want to say, five years or so, give or take. Um, and there have been attempts to try and date some of these central structures in layer 3 just to kind of see if they have all been made at the same time or if they've made, been made by different groups. Um, from what I understand, these um, they basically put them into a computer and they did some kind of weird algorithmic mapping. I did not understand at all how they came up with it. It involves derivation from mean and all this other very technical mathematic-based stuff, and I, I did not, for the life of me, understand how they were able to kind of map this stuff the way they did. But, that being said, the conclusion that they reached is that three of the sites we're kind of in this triangle. It's almost a perfect, um, I think, a, almost perfect, like, um, well, not an isosceles, but uh, just there are three sites very close together that make a very simple triangle that are about equal. I think uh, they were about, like, uh, I think it was 19 meters apart, give or take. Um, not perfect, there was one or two that were like a couple of feet away, but essentially they said that three of the sites were, yes, they were probably built at the exact same period, and that the um, fourth one, I think, which was C, um, 
was revealed to have been possibly a later edition. Uh, so oddly enough, I think A, B, and D are kind of the three that were built at the same time, and that uh, C was a later edition. Now, of course, since then, they've done a little bit more excavation. They have found some other um, sites that are close to this kind of um, ritual complex that maybe could be dated that period, maybe it could be later, or it's possibly a kind of transitional thing that used older architecture and kind of merged with newer ones. Uh, the site was in use pretty regularly and constantly, actually, uh, and I'll go into some other things that they've discovered. But essentially, um, what the people who did the study determined was that there was no evidence showing that these were built at different times, at least three of them. Uh, I know that some people pushed back on that and they said, well, no, they have to have been, been built at different times, but those people, as far as I know, have never actually been to the site and never actually studied it in person. So I'll take the people who use the computer algorithm and who have been working there for years, I'll take their word over people who are, you know, really good there are some really good archaeologists that say that it can't have been done all at the same time. Um, I forget her name. It was an Israeli archaeologist. Um, I'll have to look it up in here in a moment. Um, but she was one of the ones that said, you know, it couldn't have all been done at the same time. Um, Anna Belford Cohen. Uh, she's an Ukrainian-Israeli um, archaeologist. Um, she thought it was more likely that there were a lot of different groups that considered this whole mountain range um, sacred. And, you know, they did it to, they erected enclosures as needed on a case by case basis. And she thought that was way more likely than just one group showing up, going crazy, and then working on these constructions day and night. And she's right to an extent because there have been issues, and we've talked about it. There's no regular source of water, correct? Well, um, there have been some developments on that end, again, recently, within the last few years. This, uh, they have discovered that a cistern has been, or had been built on the site, and that this was used to collect rainwater. Um, and this was something that was in use constantly while people were not at the site. They kind of had it operating to collect rainwater. And then, you know, when they would return, whether seasonally or, you know, every couple of years, whatever the case may be, they would have a, you know, a reasonable amount of water for drinking or for using for other purposes. Um, so this is something that has been you know, fairly new. I don't know if they've been able to date the cistern, but it appears to be kind of in that middle layer between layer three and two. So it may have been a transitional item that got expanded on as time went by. It may have been built after layer three during that layer two period. Um, it's hard to say. I, I wasn't able to find firm answers one way or the other. Uh, so a lot of these early assumptions about this being a completely mobile hunter-gatherer group um, have turned out to be not necessarily false, but 
uh, there is evidence showing that that was not 100% correct. It's possible that there could have been people living here full time. Uh, in layer two, you see a lot more um, buildings that show evidence that they're permanently habitated. And these are all square, uh, which is something you see in the PPNB period. Um, so it's possible that the square buildings were, you know, built over the replacement or the uh, the torn down buildings from that would date to layer three that might be circular. It's possible they could have been, you know, re reuse different um, material from those smaller round buildings to build their new square ones. Um, you also see them beginning to practice. Um, burning limestone um, to kind of create uh, a kind of um, white flooring almost. This is something you see in the housing area. It's not, as far as I know, apparent in the um, in the temple, I guess if you want to call it that, the, the more um, the more I guess spiritual animal complexes where they, they house these tea pillars. So they're they're uh, they're they're experimenting with terrazzo, which is, you know, eventually, um, would probably lead once they learn how to master terrazzo. They might think, well, hey, this is what happens when we burn limestone. What happens if we burn these other types of stone? Uh, that probably leads to clay being burned, and that of course will help develop pottery. So we're in kind of a you know, an early period, and you're seeing these types of experimentation. Um, whatever the case, um, you know, Gobekli Tepe is something that is still, again, being excavated. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know, and there is a ton, I mean a ton of work still to be done here. I don't know if it will be completed in my lifetime. Now, I'm not the oldest man in the world. I'm mid, mid to late forties, or I'm, excuse me, mid to late thirties. But um, there's still a lot here, um, and I do plan on continuing to kind of update on this site, you know, as long as I can, you know, keep doing the show. Um, but I would recommend that you go to. Um, there is a site on. Um, uh, there's a number of different um, platforms that you can um, find it on, including Instagram and I believe YouTube as well. And it is, excuse me, it is called uh, the uh, Archaeology uh, Soilicelere. Uh, that's A R K E O L O G. Uh, J I and then S O Y L E S I L E R I. Um, and this is a site that uh, it's Turkish, as you might be able to tell from the spelling. Uh, and they have both a YouTube page, a Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, where basically they provide fairly regular updates and talks about things they're working on at the Stone Hills or Tas Tepler sites. Uh, and this is run by, um, I'm, I'm 
forgive me, I'm going to butcher the gentleman's name again. Um, uh, he was the, the Turkish um, head of the, I believe, the University of Istanbul that he's kind of taken over the lead of the site. Uh, in, since Klaus Schmidt's death, uh, his name is, uh, uh, hold on, sorry, I'm going back to last week's notes. I forgot to carry it over here. Uh, it is uh, Nekimi Karu, uh, and I'm sure, again, I'm butchering that. Uh, he's kind of the overall head of the site. He manages everyone. And then um, the other gentleman that is uh, over, I guess, the German portion is actually a man by the name of Lee Clare. Um, while Nekmi took over uh, the entire site, from Klaus Schmidt, uh, Lee Claire took over the German section. And Lee is actually a, I believe he's either British or Australian. Um, but he, he does work at the, um, the German uh, institute that uh, Klaus Schmidt worked with. Um, but they offer fairly regular updates on the site and the location. Uh, and the kind of sister sites as well. Um, and they, they offer, again, regular updates. Uh, most of them are in Turkish, though uh, Lee will occasionally do his own kind of briefing and he'll kind of discuss some of the, some of the things um, as well in English for those that uh, are interested or who cannot speak Turkish, uh, but who do speak English. Um, the most recent one of these they did, I believe, was back in November of last year, and that's actually part of the kind of the new stuff I've been, you know, kind of citing here. Um, so this is, this is all new. This is, this is some stuff that, again, it's challenging, um, kind of the standard, or at least the traditional depiction of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, it's, it's rapidly being altered, um, which is sort of a problem, uh, at least in the round, because Part of the reason Gobekli Tepe is on the UNESCO World Heritage Site is because it is seen and was initially depicted as um, this great Stone Age monolith developed by hunter-gatherers, that this is kind of a turning point um, in human history, that this is perhaps the last spiritual evidence of gathers that this was a you know you know a once um kind of a, the last gasp of the hunter gatherers as they're getting ready to be phased out by the um coming re agricultural revolution if you want to call it that and there are people who think it shouldn't be called that i'm starting to buy into some of what they're selling but um but this idea that this is this kind of seasonal you know once every so often site that isn't in permanent use and that this is a truly special and holy place that it was just for kind of the sacred retreat um there's more and more evidence that shows that no this this may have been something like jericho where you know people are living maybe not all the people in this group there may be you know people that are out hunting seasonally and they come back and they take shifts almost and that they you know return and kind of you know 
touch base with uh, you know their extended families and and go back out into the wild, uh, and that you know they continue to occupy the site. That's why you see so much backfilling. They're they're continuing to work. They're continuing to build on this. Um, so this may not be this kind of last gasp of hunter gatherer spirituality, but this may be something that's kind of a transitional point between that lifestyle and what will be the sedentary lifestyle. Um, but, you know, who knows for sure. Again, this is all just speculation. Maybe we'll find out that, you know, this is all buried on an even older, older site much later as, you know, excavations continue to happen. Maybe it will show that the hunter-gatherers here were kind of pinned in by the agriculturalists and, you know, they were eventually killed off. Maybe that's why everything was buried. They didn't trust these stone carvings that these people had made. Or maybe hunter-gatherers just moved in after, you know, some early agriculturalists were like, hey, you know, we're not getting enough rain here. We need to leave. Um, there are several options I think it could be. Um, but, thankfully, this site, again, is continuing to be updated. And if there are any major things coming forward or going forward, I'll certainly try to cover them on an episode or two. Um, but, yeah, so that's kind of what people thought Gobekli Tepe was initially. And I know I've kind of been, like, almost bad-mouthing it here at the end. Uh, no, I'm not trying to do that. Um, I'm trying to show that, you know, it's not... Um, it is still very unique and it's still very important. And again, this could kind of be an origin source for certain parts of later myths. Um, but it could also be just a failed experiment and these people, you know, they was like, okay, this place didn't work out. Let's let's try this somewhere else. And it's very possible they did. Um, or it's possible that, you know, there are more of these sites outside of the uh, Stone Hills that might be nearby, perhaps in the Levant or in northern Mesopotamia or, you know, maybe further north in other parts of Turkey. Um, we will be going a little bit to the uh, west uh, in our next set of episodes to talk about uh, Katalhoyuk, which is another site that's um, very unique. Um, but I think for now, this is probably a good place to kind of call this one. Um, I actually recorded a special episode with a guest a little bit earlier today. That was, uh, that was almost an hour and a half there. So, um, I've got some editing to do. That one won't, though, won't be out for a little while longer. There's a couple more kind of general areas I want to talk about in this region. Uh, and then I'm going to start moving into um, some other places, and then I'll kind of go into um, where we got to those secondary domestication episodes uh, and uh, agriculture developments and you know developments of cities and that kind of thing, and some of the institutions or proto institutions that may have been involved in that type of uh, structure developing. Uh, so it may be a little bit before that one comes out. I may do those piecemeal as well and may just release them 
like in the middle of standard episodes. I'm not 100% sure on that yet, but um, I hope you all look forward to it, and I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Um, I will continue uh, with Gobekli Tepe again next week, um, and then I'll also bring in some of these sister sites I've been talking about, uh, Karahan Tepe, Sefer Tepe, uh, and a few others, and just talking about how they compare in terms of time frame, uh, size, that sort of thing. Uh, and some of these sites may even be older than Gobekli Tepe. That this is actually um, maybe the reason Gobekli Tepe is so important is because it was found first, but it may not be the oldest, as we'll see. Uh, it may have been better suited to building these stone structures and pillars. Um, but I'll, again, all that's for next week. Um, there may be two or so episodes like that, but after that, we'll continue to Cattle Hoyoke. So, um, if you have any questions or feedback or constructive criticism, please reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com, or you can reach me via direct message on Twitter as well. Um, yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you will continue to like and listen and all that good stuff. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye.